Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. The lesson you're about to hear was the first one presented to the Franklin Church of Christ in 2009. In Matthew 7, 13-14, Jesus told us if we wanted to enter his eternal kingdom and receive eternal life, we had to walk the hard road. In so doing, he called us to do hard things. But what would that look like? Open your Bible and get ready to study with us what it means to do hard things. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Even though I didn't tell you where that was, some of you are already turning to it, because we know that verse, right? Matthew 7, 13 and 14. And in that verse, Jesus calls us away from the easy path of least resistance because it leads to death and destruction. He calls us to a higher road. He calls us to a harder road. Here in this passage, Jesus calls us to do hard things. This past week, I was blessed to get a read a book by Alex and Brett Harris by this title, Do Hard Things. And it would have been impressive had it been written by adults for adults, but it was even more impressive because it was written by teenagers for teenagers. These two young men are 19 years old, and they're challenging teenagers to rise above and rebel against the low expectations our culture places on teenagers. And I was especially impressed as they wrote about this topic, Do Hard Things, about what they called the five kinds of hard. And I just wanted to share that with you today, those five kinds of hard things. When Jesus, in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, tells us that we're supposed to avoid the easy road and walk on the hard road, what kind of things will we be doing? What will that look like? So we're going to talk about those five kinds of hard things. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we lift you up because you are awesome and powerful. You are the magnificent God who has created all the world. You have indeed done the hard things of creation, the hard thing of sustaining this universe in our life. But most importantly, you've done that hardest thing of bringing salvation to us by the blood of your Son. And we're thankful for that sacrifice that you've offered because you've done for us what we couldn't possibly do for ourselves. And we pray that you would help us to walk hand in hand with your Son on his hard path, that we would walk on that higher road, and we would face up to the challenge to do the hard things that come with serving you. Father, we love you and we praise your name. We thank you for loving us. Through your son's name we pray. Amen. The very first thing that we need to recognize when we talk about hard things is that we need to learn to do things that are outside our comfort zone. Place this one first because it's kind of a gateway into everything else. When we follow the path of least resistance, we follow and do the things that just come easy and naturally to us. We don't want to step outside of our comfort zone. We don't want to be stretched. We don't want to be pushed. We don't want to be challenged. But when Jesus calls us to walk on the narrow and the difficult road, He calls us to step outside of our comfort zones. Think about Moses in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, when God called Moses to deliver the children of Israel, 
In chapter 3 and verse 11, Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God was calling Moses out of his comfort zone. God continued to talk with Moses and and, and give him reasons why and and deal with his objections. And by the time we get to chapter 4 and verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. God was calling Moses out of his comfort zone. Or think about Gideon in Judges chapter 6. In Judges chapter 6, when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, Hey, I want you to lead this people against the Midianites. In Judges chapter 6 and verse 15, Gideon says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. God was calling Gideon out of his comfort zone. Gideon didn't want to lead. Gideon didn't see himself as a leader. But God was calling him to that point. He was going to have to get outside his comfort zone. Or think about Peter in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, as he's gone up to the rooftop to pray, and God produces a vision for him. In Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 9, Acts 10 and verse 9, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Then the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And we understand that this vision was not just about eating what had been considered unclean meat. It was about Peter going to the house of the Gentiles, which Peter wouldn't do. Do you think Peter felt comfortable as he walked into Cornelius' house, surrounded by Gentiles? See, God called Peter out of his comfort zone. And we need to understand that God is calling us out of our comfort zones. We're Christians. God has called us away from the easy path of least resistance that leads to death and destruction. He's called us to a higher road. He's called us to a harder road. He's called us to do hard things. He's called us to do the things that stretch us and challenge us and push us and get us out of our comfort zones. Here's the crux of the matter. If we only ever do what comes easily and naturally, then we'll never grow. Think about the one-talent man in Matthew chapter 25 in that parable. As the master had given one five talents and one two talents, and and he'd given to the one just one talent, the five and two-talent man used what God had given them. They stretched and they grew. But the one-talent man, he stayed in his comfort zone. He wasn't comfortable trying to use that talent to gain a return. And so he stayed in his comfort zone and he comes back to the master and he hands him back his one talent and he's judged as a wicked and lazy servant. But the other two were given more. See, when we step outside of our comfort zone, that is when we grow. Are there things that make you uncomfortable? Certainly this is going to mean we work on some of our weaknesses, but it also means taking our strengths to the next level. What things make you uncomfortable? Are you uncomfortable inviting somebody to assemblies? Do it anyway. Are you uncomfortable having folks into your home? Do it anyway. 
Are you uncomfortable teaching a class? Do it anyway. Get outside your comfort zone. God's called us to do hard things. The second kind of hard is do things beyond what is expected, beyond what is required. Sadly, I think there are far too many Christians today in congregations that are like Sardis in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1, John wrote, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. They had a reputation. They looked good on the outside. Now, it's possible that this reputation came because once they were alive and they were doing the hard things and now they're just living on that reputation, but it's also possible that they had a reputation because our world just doesn't have very high standards. People are willing to accept mediocrity as excellence. And by the world standard, and by the standards of other people around them, Sardis looked like a great church, but God was saying, no, 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 I know where you are. And everybody else may think you're alive, but I know what's going on. And sadly, many of us are willing to settle for having that good reputation. Let's face it, our world, just it doesn't take much to impress our world. Our world standards are so low that even those who are just slightly above mediocre are accepted as excellent. Sometimes even those who are merely mediocre are accepted as excellent. We've got to understand that that our God has a higher standard for us. God calls us to something greater. We're not sinners because we're worse than the other people in the world. According to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, we're sinners because we've fallen short of the glory of God. And when we recognize that, we'll understand that we are not holy because we are slightly better than all the folks around us in the world. But 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, God says, Be holy, for I am holy. God has called us to that higher standard, not to settle for what everyone else expects or what everyone else even might require, but to move beyond. I think part of the problem is sometimes we can easily get into a minimum requirement mindset. Just trying to figure out what the minimum requirement is to be able to get into heaven. But that's a faulty standard. Because once we recognize what Kurt pointed out to us as he presented the talk for the Lord's Supper, that we can't earn heaven, we can't earn heaven by our good works, what that means is there's not a minimum requirement. There's not if you cross this line, now you've got it. Everything else is great, but that's just not the way it is. If we're going to go to heaven, it's going to be because of Christ's grace. But we need to understand that when we follow Christ's grace, it puts us on a path of growth. It puts us on a path that is not satisfied where we are now. And if we are not growing, then we're not on the path of Christ's grace. We need to view someone like Philemon as our example. In Philemon, verse 21, as Paul had sent the letter to Philemon, he says, Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do beyond what I have asked. We need to be a people that that go beyond what is expected, that go beyond what is required, striving for excellence, doing the best we can possibly do. Not just better than others, just because we have a natural gift in something, but pursuing 
our best in everything. I don't want to minimize the point of Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount gives some excellent teaching here, and I don't want to minimize it to just this modern concept of go the second mile. But we do need to recognize that at the heart of these statements in Matthew 5, verse 38 through 42, is the concept that God's people go beyond what everybody expects of them. In Matthew 5, 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Under Roman law, if a soldier brought somebody into service and said, carry my baggage, they were only allowed to make them do it for one mile. But he says, the Christian, the kingdom servant, he excels, he goes beyond, he'll do it too. And of course, the Christian kingdom servant wouldn't say, no, 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 Jesus only said I had to do it too, I won't do it three. goes beyond what's expected. It says, if they slap you on the right cheek, turn your other to them. If they sue you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. The Christian has been called to go beyond what is expected and required. You see, we're Christians. God has called us away from the path of least resistance that leads to death and destruction. He's called us to a higher road. He has called us to a hard road. He's called us to do hard things. He's called us to do hard things that go beyond what everyone else expects and requires, not to settle for mediocrity and just what everyone else will accept, but to pursue excellence in all we do. Well, what is it that you're doing? Are you a song leader? How much time and preparation do you put in that? You know, folks would be happy if you just got up here and led some songs. But is God happy with that? What kind of preparation and forethought? Are you teaching a class or, or, or giving a talk or presenting a sermon? Oh, I have no doubt that some of us can put together good enough stuff on the fly. But is God happy with that? Is good enough good enough? How much forethought and preparation and time and planning, striving to excel so that God can be glorified? Think about the kids. Are you obeying your mom and dad because they said clean up the kitchen? You get the dishwasher all loaded and there's still some dishes on the side and you know that they won't be upset. Oh, you'll just say, oh, well, the dishwasher was full. How about go ahead and wash them by hand? (gasps) That's too hard. How about we strive for excellence? What about on the job? Boss only requires so much. How about we go beyond? Here's the crux of the matter. As Christians, everything we do reflects on Him whose name we bear. When the world looks at us, do we want them to see that good enough was good enough? Or do we want them to see excellence? God was not required to send His Son for us. Jesus was not required to get up on that cross for us. God went beyond what was expected and required for us because He loved us. How much more should we go beyond what's expected and required because we love Him? The third kind of hard 
is to do things too big to be done alone. Do things that are too big to be done alone. Now, of course, there's a very real sense in which we can't do anything alone. And I understand that. Acts chapter 17, and verse 25. Acts chapter 17 and verse 25, as Paul's talking about God, he said he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything because he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then in verse 28, though he's quoting a pagan poet, he says this point is true that in him we live and move and have our very being. Yeah, there's a real sense that that we can't do anything alone. It's only by God's grace and strength that we even move and exist and are able to breathe in and out. But as I'm talking about this point, I'm not talking in that sense of, of the fact that we need God's strength to accomplish anything. I'm talking about that within that, as God is working through us, that we need to learn to rely on each other. Do things that are too big to be done alone. Do things where we have to band together with one another. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about it, really. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I tell you what, there are far too many churches that even though folks are getting together every week, everybody's doing everything all on their own. Except just coming to church on Sunday and Wednesday night. But when it comes to actually growing a body of Christ, it takes working together by that which every part supplies, as every part is working. I just want to get really personal about us here at the Franklin Congregation. And each and every one of us as individual members, I, I want us, myself included, I'm talking to everybody. This is not me talking to you, this is me talking to me and you get to hear it. We need to be busy doing things that are too big to be done alone. I want you to look around for just a moment. How many people are here? We got some folks sick, so the folks that normally sit over here aren't, aren't here today. So it looks a little bit even, uh, it looks a little bit more sparse than it normally would. But, but essentially, you look around. Even though there's different faces, this this is about the way this auditorium looked five years ago when my first sermon. We've been bumping along at this place for about five years. I suggest that it's time for us to band together and do the things that are too hard to be done alone. And step up to the plate and do what it takes to get the gospel out in Middle Tennessee. Not just so our pews can be filled, but because there's lost people here. And they need to hear that gospel. And, and it can't be done by any one person. It can't be done by one small group. This is something that's too big to be done alone. It's going to take people who are willing to invite. And recommend. It's going to take people who are willing to greet guests when they come into our midst. It's going to take people who are willing to follow up with guests when they're gone. It's going to take people who are willing to have Bible studies with folks. It's going to take people who are willing to have regular home studies just for Christians to come together, but probably even on a weekly basis. Oh, that's too hard. We already come to church on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. I don't know if I could give up another time. It's going to take people who are willing to spend hours in prayer. 
None of this can be done by one person. It's too big to be done alone. We need to work together. I think about Barnabas in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, Barnabas is sent to Antioch because the church has been established there. And in Acts chapter 11 and verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Barnabas got there and he was working and he realized, this is too big for me alone. And he went and got somebody else. I don't know why Barnabas did that. When he made that choice, Paul became the premier Christian in all the New Testament and Barnabas lost out. Up to that point, it might have been Barnabas who got to write all the epistles. But no, we're getting Paul involved now and he gets to do it. Isn't that sometimes why we're afraid to do things that are too big to be done alone? Because if I start getting other people involved, they might get the credit, and I don't. But Barnabas wasn't worried about that. What, what kind of work is it that you can do? Can you visit the sick and the shut-in? Teach a class? Home Bible studies? Write notes of encouragement? Call folks? Go and serve some of the widows? Take the gospel to the poor and the needy? Instead of doing it on your own, why don't you tap somebody on the shoulder and say, hey, come do this with me. Let's work on it together. You'll be amazed what you can accomplish. We're Christians. God has called us away from the easy path of least resistance that leads to death and destruction. He's called us to a higher road. He's called us to a hard road. He's called us to do hard things. He's called us to do things that are too big for us to do alone. The fact is, nothing worth doing is worth doing by ourselves. And the crux of the matter is this. The one person throughout all of history who really did have the power to do everything all on his own when he came into the world didn't. Instead, he gathered a group of men that he trained to go out and work. And if that's the way Jesus approached things, when he really could do it all on his own, how much more should we when we should be humble enough to admit that we can't do it on our own anyway. The fourth thing that I would hope you'd recognize is we need to learn to do things without immediate payoff. Do things that don't have an immediate payoff. You know, when we start talking about big things like evangelizing Middle Tennessee, boy, our blood gets pumping. We get excited. We get pumped up. Because we're going to do this really big thing. But we need to understand this. Before the big things get done, we've got to do the small things. And how many things are there that just each and every single occurrence, they, they just don't seem to amount to much. And so today I'm going to put them off. I mean, I plan to do it, and I know it's important in the long run, but, but I'll just put it off. And then I put it off again, and I put it off again. And now it's been a month, it's been a year, and I've not ever done it. We're talking about things here like Bible reading and study or prayer, visiting the sick and the shut-in, having people into our homes. We're just talking about those daily discipline kind of things. How easy it is not to do that. And, 
And it's easy because each occurrence doesn't seem to really accomplish all that much. I want you to think about this. Let's think about eating. You know, the fact is, I could probably skip a meal and it wouldn't hurt me a bit. In fact, I could probably skip a day's worth of meals and really it wouldn't hurt me a bit. I'd be hungry. But, phys- I mean, look at me. Do you think it's going to hurt me a bit? But what if I missed a week? Or a month? That would start to take its toll, wouldn't it? In fact, if I go that long, it might kill me. Well, that's the way it is with these little bitty spiritual disciplines. Each occurrence doesn't seem to accomplish much. So it seems that if, if I just missed it for today, that, that really wouldn't be that big of a deal. But if I keep missing it. I mean, I studied my Bible this week, but just to be honest with you, the Bible study that I did just this week, that, that didn't get that much out of it. And I've I got to be honest with you, I really, really like this sermon. But in reality, just this one sermon is not going to accomplish a whole lot. I mean, I could probably miss this one and it'd be okay. The struggle is when it comes to these small things that don't have an immediate payoff, is that they're all about habits. And we're either developing a habit to do these things or we're working on a habit not to. And, you know, some folks suggest that it takes about a month to develop a habit. And I'll point out that, well, it takes about a month to develop a good habit. For me, it only takes one day to develop a bad one. I don't know about you, but the habit of procrastination didn't take me a month to develop that one. One day, I got it down. We're either developing the habit to do these things or we're developing the habit not to do these things. We need to remember that the Scripture calls us and encourages us. We know Acts 17.11 encourages us with the Bereans to to study the Scriptures daily. We know that 1 Thessalonians 5 and 17 encourages us to pray without ceasing. Hebrews 10.25 encourages us not to miss the assemblies. Romans chapter 12 and verse 13 encourages us to contribute to the needy saints and to show hospitality. And we could go on and on with verses that encourages us to these small things, but I don't know what it is about these things. It's not like God has called us to climb Mount Everest every day or every week. These are really simple things and they're very easy. But sometimes they end up being the very hardest things for us to do. So we need to step up to the plate to do the hard things. We need to realize that that even though just doing it today is probably not going to amount to much, if I do it every day, that's 365 times. If I I read my Bible just for today, no, that's not going to accomplish much. In fact, if I miss today, it probably wouldn't impact me very much. But if I read my Bible every day, 365 times, you think that might have an impact? You see the point? These small things don't have an immediate payoff, but when we put them together and we do them repeatedly, they provide a huge payoff. We're Christians. God has called us away from the easy path of least resistance that leads to death and destruction. He's called us to a higher road. He's called us to a hard road. He's called us to do hard things. He's called us to do those little things that with each occurrence don't provide an immediate payoff, but when you put them together, produce a big. Here's the crux of the matter. Jesus, who did big things, who died on the cross, was the same Jesus who spent nights in prayer when nobody was looking at him. 
Jesus who taught thousands was the same Jesus who sat down with just a handful on a repeated basis. If Jesus would do the small things, how much more should we? And the fifth kind of hard that God has called us to do is to go against the grain of the cultural norm. Really, this one's last because it's the culmination of the others. If we get the others down, we're going to naturally be doing this because our societal norm, our cultural norm is mediocrity. And when we step up to the plate and do these hard things, we'll be above that. We'll be standing out. And folks won't like it. Sadly, again, I think many churches and many Christians have become like another one of those seven churches of Asia, this time the church in Laodicea. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Laodicea being lukewarm did not mean that they were only halfway on fire for God. What it meant was that like any lukewarm drink, they had been too affected by their surroundings. They had been impacted by the world around them. They weren't standing out, they were fitting in. We've got to be prepared for the fact that if we're going to face up to God's challenges, if we're going to walk the hard road, only few people find that, y'all. And most everybody else, if they see us over on the hard road, they're not going to be happy with us. They're going to be trying to pull us back so they can feel better about themselves. We just need to be prepared. Think about the disciples in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, they boldly proclaimed, we've got to obey God rather than man. And they were beaten for it. But in Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Why were they able to rejoice? Because they expected it. They weren't shocked and surprised. I think maybe that's what hits Christians. They had this idea that if I just live like a Christian, everybody's going to like me. And when they notice that people don't, they start backing off. We need to be prepared for the fact that the world isn't going to like us. Look at the broad religious spectrum in our world today. And what you'll notice in all the churches is how they're constantly marching to be more like the world. You take a look at the churches on the left, the, the, the most liberal denominations, and they're even accepting the continued practice of impenitent practice of homosexuality as if it's okay. And, and impenitent adultery and fornication. So much so that when one church down in Florida decides that they're going to disappoint someone because she's living with a man, it makes national news. Even Joel Osteen, pastor of the largest church in America, on national television because he was afraid to look judgmental, nitpicky, and narrow, intimated that people might be saved without Jesus Christ. We can't fear the fact that people aren't going to like us. We're just going to have to be ready for it. God has called us to do the hard things of stepping up to the plate and going against the grain of the cultural norm. John, chapter 15. 
In John chapter 15, we learn why this happens. John 15 and verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. They hated Jesus. They're going to hate us. Why did they hate Jesus? John chapter 3, beginning at verse 19, explains. In John 3 and verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When we're walking on the hard path, our light shines and exposes the mediocrity and the wickedness of those around us. And they don't like it, so they want to pull us into the darkness. But I'll tell you what's really going to hurt. You know, the fact is, a lot of us are prepared for the world to treat us that way. But what you really need to be ready for is we've got a lot of Laodicean brethren. A lot of Laodicean brethren that when they see your excellence and they see you stepping out, they're going to want to pull you back. Because your light exposes their mediocrity. And we're ready for folks in the world to do it. We're not ready for folks in this room to do it. But it'll happen. We've got to be willing to stand up to the hard things. And go against the grain of the cultural norm. I'm, I'm not trying to say that anybody here is better than anybody else. I'm just letting us know that when we step up to the plate to do these hard things, there are going to be folks that don't want to do them. And they won't want us to either because it will make them look bad. And the reality is, people in the world, they won't understand it. When we constantly turn down their invitations to their drinking parties, but constantly invite them to our prayer services. Folks in the world won't understand it why we'll miss entertainment and sporting events and recreation in order to be at our assemblies or to go to a Bible study, or be in a class. I don't understand that. And they'll try to pull us down. We, we're Christians. God has called us away from the easy path of least resistance that leads to death and destruction. He's called us to a higher road. He's called us to a hard road. He has called us to do hard things. And He's called us to do the hard thing of going against the grain of the cultural norm. No matter what happens, we need to follow what we learned last week from 2 Peter 1, verses 5 and 6. And we've got to add steadfastness to our faith and our virtue and our knowledge and our self-control. Here's the crux of the matter. Despite the fact that living God's way should make us the most likable people in the world, people just aren't going to like us. And we need to be ready for that. Not that we're trying to get people to not like us. Not that we go out of our way to get people to not like us. It's just the way it's going to be. Folks aren't going to like us. They're going to make fun of us. They're going to put us down. They're going to ostracize us. But we need to stay with God and do His hard things. Do hard things. This is going to be like a motto for me. 
You can ask the kids. They've heard it this week so much, they're almost sick of it already. Do hard things. God's called us away from the path of least resistance. He's called us to a hard road, a narrow road, a difficult road. And only few are going to find it. I'd like to invite you, as we step into 2009, to adopt this paradigm for your life. Not that any of us are going to be perfect. Not that, not that we're trying to earn salvation, because we've already pointed out that we can't. But just because God has done the hard things for us, let's step up to the plate and walk His hard road with Him. His grace will be with us. You can do this. Not because of you, but because of the power of God working in you. Let's do hard things together. I hope this lesson edified you. Most of all, I hope it glorified God. Let's review the five kinds of hard things we learn to do when we walk on Jesus' hard road. Number one, do things outside your comfort zone. Number two, do more than what others expect or require. Number three, do things too big to be accomplished alone. Number four, do things that don't have an immediate payoff. Number five, do things that go against the grain of the cultural norm. If you have any questions about this lesson, spiritual needs, or prayer requests, please feel free to contact us at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. If you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to meet you face-to-face. Please join us for any of our assemblies or classes. You can find directions and meeting times on our website. Again, that's at franklinchurchofchrist.com. We look forward to meeting you. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.